Good morning. My name is Greg, and I am the family's pastor. Uh, and as the family's pastor, just a quick, quick plug again. Some of you are here, here to hear it, and some of you are not. We've got a pool party tonight for our families. That's at Cert Oasis. All swimming, slides, the whole deal. Um, and then this coming Saturday, we're doing a movie night right here. And some of you other guys might want to crash that and I won't kick you out if you do. Uh, but that's for families. I think we'll be watching the new Bad Guys movie, um, but we'll see. That's at, that's at 5.30 right here. We're going to be watching on the big screen. So I wanted to, wanted to share those two events for our families. If you have questions on any of those, again, you can reference that card. And um, speaking of families, this is my family. Did, did, they, did they get up there? I'm not sure um, if they did or not. There they are. Look at them. Come on. That's my beautiful wife, Allison. And uh, Emery is our oldest. She's 11. Um, she's right there next to me. Grayson has got the um, Dr. Seuss hat on there because he's a kinder cat and they're all about Dr. Seuss. Um, and he is about to turn seven. And then Hudson on the left, he's nine. And he actually asked me this morning, Daddy, are you going to talk about me in your sermon today? <laughs> and the reason he asked that, I don't know if you knew this, this morning, uh, it's Pentecost Sunday. Isn't that cool? So we're not, we're not talking about Acts 2, but my son decided that he would just be like, like a prophetic picture for all of us this week. And he was playing with a candle and he lit his hair on fire. So he said, Dad, are you going to talk about me in the sermons? If you don't know, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit fell on the church and it looked like flames of fire upon their heads. So thank you, Hudson. Praise God. Let it be. Let it be in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Um, well, hey, we're actually, we're actually in a series called Life in His Name. And this summer, we've been going through the book of John. I hope you have been as blessed and as encouraged as I have. Um, just an incredible gospel and every time you just get into the life of Jesus, it's life-giving, it's refreshing, um, it's transformative, it's convicting. Um, and John's probably my favorite gospel. I, I just love it. I love the way he communicates. I love his heart for the heart. Um, I'm very pastoral. And so he just, he speaks to me in a lot of ways. And this morning we've, we've found our way to John chapter 8. Um, which has a really powerful encounter in it um, that's been recorded. And um, before we get into it, um, uh, this passage might actually be my favorite uh, relation or, or like telling of, of, of a story of Jesus, of who he is and what he did. Um, but this passage in particular, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, the story of the woman caught in adultery, it, it needs a little bit of house cleaning. It needs a little bit of addressing at the front end. And so I want to do that. If you have your Bible with you and, or maybe even a Bible app, um, you might notice that that part of that passage is maybe double bracketed. It's got like a, it's set off from the rest of it. Or some of your versions might actually even have that whole story, that whole account down in a footnote below the actual text, and it skips straight from um, John uh, 7.52 right to 8.12, and it takes that whole passage of the, of the story of the woman caught in adultery and puts it in a footnote. And there's a reason why, and we're going to talk about that for just a moment, um, without going into like a really deep dive into this, right? We're, we're not going to um, get real deep into the authority of Scripture um, and how we can know we can trust it. But we are going to talk about that briefly because this is one of those rare situations where when you actually, uh, scholars, as they look at the earliest manuscripts, what's a manuscript? A manuscript is a copy of the original Scripture, right? And sometimes those are copies of copies, 
right? And so this is how scriptures come to us. We don't actually have any original copies of scripture. I think that's actually a provision and a grace of God so that there aren't people flocking from all over the world to come and worship at the feet of the original copy of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, right? Um, And and so God in his wisdom knew that that would probably be a, a good idea, but but then it, then it kind of begs the question, okay, so, so this, this passage that we're going to talk about this morning is actually not in any of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. We're still going to preach it. Why? Well, well, let's talk about that for a moment, okay? What we know overall about Scripture is that as far as ancient texts go, it is incredibly trustworthy and reliable. In, in comparison to other ancient works, things like the Iliad written by Homer or, or other things that have survived from that age, the, the amount, the, the, the number of manuscripts, of copies of scripture that we have and the array, the different sources that they've come from or different lines, if you will, like, like streams of copies that we have dwarf any other text that exists in, in antiquity. I mean, like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies of the New Testament, of the Old Testament as well. And these copies have been proven again and again and again to be accurate and to be reliable. And there are slight variations and changes, but one of the things we can rest upon as followers of Jesus is that these variations, the ones that are found in Scripture, the vast majority of them, 99.8% of all these variances don't change anything in the scripture. It's maybe like a piece of punctuation or a way a name is spelled or very small things like that. The other 0.02%, we can rest assured that none of these things that differ from one copy of scripture to another copy of scripture change any doctrine in scripture in any way, right? So it's not like we have one copy that says thou shalt not murder and another that says thou shall murder. You see what I'm saying, right? One might say, thou shan't murder, and the other says, thou shall not murder. You see see the difference there, right? So that's a variation. That's something that's different, but it doesn't change the heart and the meaning and the interpretation of Scripture in any way. The reason that we're going to talk about John 8 this morning, even though it's set off and set aside, even though that this, this actually didn't show up in any manuscripts until about 500 A.D., Um, is because New Testament scholars, while they acknowledge that this passage wasn't originally in John here, what they do acknowledge is that it is nonetheless a real depiction of Jesus' life. It's something that was passed down and loved and valued by the early church so much that eventually it was placed into Scripture in the way that it was. Beyond that, when we look at this chapter, I mean, it's probably some of, some of your favorite, like it is for me, some of, your, some of you, it's your favorite account of an interaction that Jesus has. And, and the reason is, is because it so clearly communicates the heart of the Father in the new covenant. This story, it just screams gospel. It agrees with the rest of scripture. So here's how we're going to address this and how we're going to approach this this morning. Usually we come to the word of God and it's the thing upon which we stand as an unshakable, inerrant foundational truth by which we live our lives. 
And then we, we preach out of that, right? We, we live out of that. We, st- we put our two feet on that and we stand on it. And this morning we're gonna do it a little bit differently, right? I'm still gonna preach this passage, but we're gonna stand on the whole of scripture. We're gonna stand on everything that's around this passage as well. And we're gonna stand upon the gospel and then we're gonna, we're gonna look into this passage and, and we're gonna receive from it what God has for us. Just as, just, in, just as we would look out into nature and receive that God's a creator. We're gonna look at this passage and receive from him um, the gospel message that he has for us. And it's gonna be very powerful. I just, I believe it. God, God is moving here this morning. He's got something really, really important to speak to us. And I carry that conviction. So why don't you pray with me and we'll get into John 8 here this morning. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that it's trustworthy and reliable. We thank you that it transforms our lives. It's not some ancient dead document, but it lives. It moves in our hearts. And if we would open ourselves to it, God, it would transform us in ways that we could barely think to ask or imagine, God. And so we do. We open our hearts and our lives this morning to your word. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would transform us. We humbly submit to you this morning. We bless you in Jesus' name. All right. So I'm going to start this morning with a story that's just a little bit risque. All right. But I figure it's okay. I mean, we are talking about a woman who got caught in the middle of adultery and got dragged into the middle of the street, right? So the story itself is already a little risque. Some of you guys are like, all right, church is spicing up, right? (laughs) I I once shared a story at a wedding. I didn't even think about it afterwards of my dog getting run over. It, it actually went over really well. I'll tell you about it later. Um, don't have time right now. It was a very good analogy. Um, but afterwards, I was like, maybe not the best wedding illustration, right? Um, you guys are very curious right now. I know it. Growing up, uh, I grew up in Texas in Houston, and uh, we used to go up regularly uh, to the San Marcos, New Braunfels area, and we would tube. Don't stone me here, okay? We would tube the Guadalupe River. Okay, now listen, I already see my Hispanic friend Alex over there shaking his head vigorously at me. This is what we called it, okay? When I moved here and, and, and we drove on Guadalupe Street, I kept calling it Guadalupe. And I couldn't figure out, I know how to pronounce Spanish words. And I couldn't figure out why I was mispronouncing it. And then I realized that I'm like, oh, every Texan calls it the Guadalupe River. And that's what I grew up calling it. So that's what I call it, okay? It's a beautiful river. Um, It's like one of the cleanest, clearest rivers um, in Texas. Here's a picture of it. Check this out. It's got these giant bald cypress trees that line all along as you go. It's incredibly beautiful. Um, Really uh, still, there's some parts of it where um, the the water slows down and it gets deeper and they've put handholds or like they've, they've nailed boards into these cypress trees and you can climb up into the tree Um, and you can jump out of it 30, 40, sometimes almost 50 feet up in the air. And so I'm going with my friends um, and his family, his cousins are with us and we're all tubing the river and we get out in one of these, these points and my friend's cousin climbs to the very top of the tree. Now I know none of you are so immature as to have done this at any point in your teenage years. But when I was a teenager, there was this thing called pantsing where you would go up and grab the hem of somebody's shorts 
and pull them down, right? Very mature, I know. Usually that's okay, they would be wearing underwear, right? You just could never go commando. Well, guess what, when you're wearing swim trunks, My friend's cousin, PJ, climbs to the top of this big bald cypress tree. His cousin is right behind him, my friend, and he gets to the top of this tree. He's 40 feet up in the air. He's standing on a branch, holding one hand on the tree. His cousin comes behind him, right down to the ankles. I mean, all the way. I mean, we're down in the water going, oh goodness, right? Like, oh, like, and, and like about half the people in the river see this and they're like, oh, you know, he's like trying to hold the tree and he gets his pants up, right? And he, and he finally gets all settled in and then puts his hands up, puts his hand on the tree, cousin reaches up second time. Whoa, right down the ankle. Of course, at this point, everyone in the river has heard the commotion. So everyone's looking at him, right? So he's got one hand on the tree trunk, yanks up one hand on his swim trunks and he's just out. He's like, I'm out of the tree. Like just jumps right off, right? Oh my goodness. Have you had a moment like PJ? I mean, maybe not that graphic, but have you had a moment like PJ? We actually have a phrase for it, right? Like getting caught with your pants down. It's like that moment of like, oh, I'm, I'm vulnerable here. Like that thing that I didn't want anyone to know about. It's out there for everybody to see. Some of you right now are feeling like the secondhand embarrassment from that story. Like the secondhand shame. Like it just, it creeps out there and you're like, ooh, I don't even like listening to that story. It's not even about me. Let's look at, at John chapter eight, verses two through 11. And we're gonna get in to just what God has to say to us this morning, specifically about shame. It says, early in the morning, Jesus... He, Jesus, came to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Cue the Admiral Akbar, right? It's a trap, right? They're trying to trap him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up to her and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I want us to put ourselves for a moment before we get into Jesus' incredible response before we get into looking at these scribes and Pharisees and their hearts and their intentions and their motives or this mob that's gathered around, I want to stop for just a moment and I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the woman who'd been caught in adultery. I want us to practice a little bit, bit of empathy. I want us to imagine what would it be like to be caught in the way that she was. 
to be grabbed out of the middle of this act in a, in a moment you thought was private and hidden away, secreted from everybody else, as wrong as it may have been and as guilty as you might have felt about it later in that moment, you had no sense of the impending doom that was coming, right? Snatched away, not just snatched away, but drug to the middle of the temple. Can you imagine being caught in your worst sin and drugged to the front of the stage in church before everybody? The fear that you would be feeling because you know the penalty for what you've done. The penalty is death. You know what the law prescribes. You know that you're guilty. She had to be a feeling just absolutely mortified, terrified, all of her junk, all of her, her, her brokenness just wow, out there for the whole world to see, completely exposed. Beyond that, there had to be a sense of like anger within her, right? I mean, last I checked, it takes two to tango. There's two guilty parties here. Where's the guy? Where's the guy? You know, what it shows us is that these Pharisees, they weren't really after justice. They didn't really care about justice. She was a pawn. They were using her to get to Jesus. They didn't value her. They thought she was dirty. They thought she was worthless. And she was a means, her life was a means to try to trap Jesus. And that's all she was to them. And so I just want you to imagine what it, what it felt like there, hung out to dry in all her sin and shame as a piece of bait to try to trap Jesus into saying something he shouldn't say or doing something that he shouldn't do. All her sin and shame is just out there. And so let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about sin and shame because it's, it's really the problem here. Shame's really the problem, but first we gotta talk about sin because sin is what produces shame. Well, what is sin? Sin is the choices that we make to reject God, to reject his good and loving plan and purposes and order that he has for our lives. The design of God is when we, it's when we rebel. So when we say, God, I don't trust you in your way, I'm gonna do it my way. I don't trust you in your wisdom, I'm gonna apply my wisdom. And what sin ultimately does is it, is it leads to shame. What is shame? Shame is the way we feel about ourselves because of our sin. It's the way we perceive ourselves because of those things that we would prefer to say hidden behind locked doors, secreted away from the world. That's what shame is. Shame is the, the don't look at this. Nobody, I'm okay as long as nobody sees this thing. And keep this thing hidden away. Keep this thing secreted away. I, I need us to pay attention because this passage, pay attention, church, this passage is about shame. And there may be no thing that is more prevalent within the church, eating our lunch, messing up our relationships, stealing our freedom and our joy than shame. I mean, it's just, it's, it's ubiquitous. All of us experience it. All of us are, are saddled by this thing and weighed down by it in so many different ways. And I think many of us know that God has dealt with our sin. But do we know that he's actually not only dealt with our sin, but he's actually dealt with the way we feel about ourselves because of our sin. He's dealt with the way that we see ourselves. He's, he's healed that piece as well. My dad, um, he smoked for oh, 50 years, I mean, a long time, my, my whole entire childhood. 
I remember it. And shame is a little bit like living with a smoker, right? My dad could do it all he could. He was pretty good about it. He didn't smoke inside. My mom wouldn't let him, right? So he'd go outside and he'd smoke. Or if he was in his car, he'd roll down the window. But any of you who have been around smoke, if you've been around a campfire, if, if you've had a fire in your house, right? And, this, and there's a lot of smoke. What do they have to do? They have to rip the sheetrock out of your house. Why? Because it absorbs, it penetrates, it permeates everything. And that's what it was like uh, oftentimes living with my dad. Like he could quit for a week or two and you could just stick your nose in his like car seat or something, right? And it just like, oh, it's still in there, right? Or like a campfire. It's like, it doesn't, you could change shirts and it's like, it's in your skin. Like you can like literally smell your skin and you're like, I still smell like it. And this is what shame is like. Shame is not something that just kind of like sits on us. It actually, it, it permeates, it gets in us. It's about identity. This is how I see myself. I see myself as dirty. I see myself as unworthy, unlovable. I see myself as someone who doesn't deserve the kindness or the mercy or the forgiveness of God. I did it again and I did it again and I did it again. And why would God ever take me back? And I, I'm just a total screw up and I can't do it right. And it's this little mantra that plays through our minds over and over and over again. And sometimes it's just like background noise. We don't even know we're hearing it, but it's changing the way that we operate and the way that we live our lives. We have this fear of being exposed that if we let somebody get too close to us, they're going to sniff test, right? They're going to smell it on us. I smell your dirtiness. I smell, I smell that thing that's wrong with you. And so we, we work to keep people away. We work to keep people at arm's distance. We try to cover up the smell. You ever had somebody like a smoker and they spray a bunch of cologne on? It's like, now you smell like smoky cologne. Like... <laughs> doesn't quite work, right? And so we can't get out of it. We can't get out of, of, of the sin that produces the shame. We're kind of stuck with it. It's in us. And so instead we try to cover it up or we, we try to hide it, right? Our response to shame, and this is the response we see here in scripture this morning, is so often to use judgment, accusation, and condemnation to take the spotlight off of ourselves and put it on somebody else. I want you to hear this. Our response to shame, the way that we feel about ourselves, is to take the spotlight off of ourselves through judgment, criticism, um, and, and shaming others, accusation. It's like if the lights are on me, I want to somehow turn them and point them over here. And that way the attention's not on me anymore. As long as the attention's not on me, I'm safe. It's okay if the attention's on them. And sometimes I'll even divert the attention to them because I don't want it to be on me, because I don't want anyone to see what's inside of me. What we do is we pick up stones and we aim them at others. You see, if I'm holding a stone, you're not gonna get too close to me. If I'm holding a stone, you're gonna stay far enough away where you can't smell that smell, where you can't get too close and see what's actually, what I'm actually like, what actually is underneath there, the way that I feel about myself and the deep shame that I feel. And so I'm gonna pick up this stone and if you get too close, I might use it. If you get too close, I might hit you over the head. I might say something that's hurtful. I might point out a weakness about you. I might compare you to somebody else so that you'll take a step back and that you don't get too close to me, right? 
As long as we're holding on to stones, we can't lay a hold of our freedom. That's what God has for us this morning. As long as we're holding on to stones, accusation, judgment, criticism, shaming others, like as long as we're holding on to that, we can't experience the freedom that God has for us. We can't lay hold of it. We got something else in the way. Here's how Jesus responds as the woman is brought out. It says, in the law, Moses, they say this to Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us, verse five, to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against, against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, they're pressing him. You see that? He stood up and said to them, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. This is awesome. And the first thing I want you to notice here is what Jesus did not do. He did not pick up a stone. Though she deserved it, though she had committed the crime, Jesus did not accuse. This is a foundational truth that applies to the goodness of God and who he is and something we need to know about him. God never accuses you. He's never pointing his finger at you and saying, look what you did. I'm so ashamed of you. How could you have done that? Jesus said in John chapter three, I didn't come in the world to judge the world, to condemn the world. I came in the world to save it. He showed up on the scene, not that, so, so that he could point fingers at us, though he had every right to do so. He showed up on the scene so that we could experience the life that he has for us, the freedom through the cross. We're gonna get into that in just a minute. So he, he completely flips the script on them. These Pharisees and these scribes, they're pointing a limelight on this woman and really they're pointing a limelight on him. And you can hear it, they're pestering him. Jesus, what are you gonna do? And he bends down to write in the sand, give us an answer, give us an answer. You need to show us what you're gonna do. Show us how you're gonna resolve this situation because one of two options, either he's gonna ignore the Mosaic law and he's gonna let this woman off the hook and he's gonna be seen to be merciful, but he's gonna lose all his credibility as a teacher. Or he's gonna encourage everyone to pick up stones and stone her. And he's gonna lose the, the equity, the relational equity that he's been, built up with people as a man of compassion and grace and kindness. So yeah, they're out to spoil him, right? But he flips the script and he does it by playing on their turf, which is the Mosaic law. They're trying to catch him using the law. And he's like, okay, you wanna play that game? I'll play that game. He bends down and, you know, I want to imagine we don't know what he wrote. I think it's intentionally ambiguous. But I do imagine that what Jesus is doing in that moment is ignoring all these voices that are shouting at him, demanding for an answer. And he's speaking to the father. And he's saying, God, what are you doing? Father, how do I respond? How do I show this woman love and compassion? And how do I also address this vitriol and this anger and this misplaced shame that's going on all over here. Will you give me an answer? And, and the father speaks to him and he says, Deuteronomy chapter 13, which is where you find the law on, on stoning or, or the, the death penalty, right? For someone who's caught in the act of adultery. 
And when somebody's caught, that is the penalty. It, it, it's, it's a stoning. It's a death penalty. But, but here's what that verse says that you have to have in order to execute that penalty. First, you have to, you have to be a witness to the, to the crime. You have to have seen it yourself in order to instigate or initiate the punishment. And the second thing, right? right so let's start there. First of all, that's going to rule out like probably 90 or 95% of the people that are gathered around. A lot of them were just with Jesus hearing him teach, and then the woman's dragged in. So, well, they weren't there. They didn't see it, right? So there's 90, 95%. Now, there's a handful that would have known exactly what was happening. And the second part of carrying out this punishment is that not only did you have to witness it, but you also have to not also be complicit in the same crime. So Jesus isn't just saying like, it's not so high as him saying, you can't have any sin in order to stone her. He's saying, you can't have this sin to stone her. Ooh. You talk about flipping the script, right? You talk about Jesus taking the light and pointing it right back at the Pharisees. And he's saying, hey, let's see how righteous and holy your life is. And maybe that's what he's waiting for down there. He's, he's saying, Father, how do I get out of this? And, and, and the Father says, there's no witness here. Every single person who saw her do this is guilty of this same crime. And so they have no right to pick up a stone. Wow. And so one by one, they begin to walk off. When I was in high school, I took a photography class. Um, for all of you who are like younger than 30, there used to be this stuff called film. Um, and it went in a camera and, it, and you took pictures and there was no screen that showed you what you had taken. You just had to hope it was good. And then you took it to Walgreens and it was like an hour later. Then that was a miracle, an hour, right? But I took a photography class and it was awesome because I got to put the film in my camera and roll it in and take a bunch of pictures. And then you would take it in the dark room, right? And you would develop the film and you would take the film um, over to this light and you would put it inside the light and the light would shine through the film. And you would put a piece of photo paper down there and you would put it underneath the light and the light would shine through the negative onto the paper and expose it. And you would have to test for how long you needed to do that. And then you'd shut off the light. It was awesome. And then you'd take it over and there's like a chemical bath that you put it through. There's a developer um, that, that made the picture come out. And then there was a fixer that like kind of like stopped it from developing. And there was a stop bath that like killed all everything else. And that was it. So you would soak it in these different things and you'd take it through. And it was awesome because you'd start off with this just blank piece of paper, photo paper, and you'd expose it to the light. And then you'd bring it over and you'd put it down into this, this bath and it would begin to wash and your picture would start to show up. It was actually a really, really fun uh, process. The next verse here in John is, is, is chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm the one who comes and shines a light on everything. And I expose what's in your heart. It's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is coming and just his, his miraculous and, and godly, in literal and sense of the word, uh, uh, ability to 
bring the real thing that's going on inside of people, the heart motives that are in people. And he just goes, and he unearths those things and he sets them out there for everybody to see. He's like the developer, the chemical, right? Like they've been exposed to the light and he comes along with mastery and and just perfection. And then he puts everybody in the bath and what's in them just comes out for all to see. It's incredible. All will stand before the light of the world. And what we learn here in this passage is what resounds in a verse like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus says, you want a stoner, let you who's without sin be the first one. And now there's no one standing around. They've all walked away. Why? Because they're all sinners. Because none of them are actually any better than she is. They're just trying to deflect the attention away from their own brokenness in their heart. What's beautiful about Jesus is unlike the Pharisees, unlike the scribes, unlike this crowd, he actually saw her. He saw this woman. He, he cared about her. All this noise and all this mess and all this big mob that's going on and Jesus' heart the entire time is like, I just need to get you guys out of the way so that I can have a moment with this daughter of the living God. So that I can reveal to her how deeply loved she is. So I can show her who I am and how she has hope in her life. And that's what happens. I mean, something absolutely incredible. Verse 10, Jesus stood up, right? So that she's been left alone, just the woman standing before him. And it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, that's actually a, respect, a respectful term, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. I think it's tempting to think that this woman felt really exposed in the middle of that crowd with everyone looking and knowing her sin. But you know, I actually think most of the attention was really on Jesus while that was going on. I think this is the moment when she actually felt really exposed. When everybody else walked away and it was just her and Jesus standing face to face. And she's wondering, what is he gonna do? What's he gonna say? How's he gonna respond? All the attention now is it's just her. It's just her and, and the son of God. And he looks at her and he says, Does no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. You know, if Jesus was just another man, that phrase wouldn't actually have that much meaning. Right? Like if he was just another man like me or you or another woman, and he says, I don't condemn you either. Well, it's like, well, you're sinful too. You don't have any right to condemn me, right? This matters because of who Jesus is. He's essentially offering her forgiveness right here. And had the Pharisees still been around, it would have set them off. They would have picked up stones right there because there's only one who can forgive and it's God. And so Jesus is standing before her and saying, I'm forgiving you. He's declaring himself to be God. He's saying, I am the son of God. This passage is all about exposure. It started with the woman and her sin being exposed before all to see. 
And then it moved on to the Pharisees and their motives and the way they were trying to trap and how Jesus exposed those things. And then it moved on to the sinfulness and the brokenness of all those who were there and how that was exposed. And now Jesus is standing before her and it's the greatest moment of exposure that can exist. And Jesus is exposing his true nature. And he's standing before her and he's saying, I'm the son of God and I forgive you. Face to face, eye to eye, heart to heart, Jesus is connecting with her. And there's this beautiful exclamation point that comes from the end of this chapter when the Pharisees are getting into it with Jesus because he's talking about being the light. And, he's, and they're saying, how can you possibly, you're, refer, you're bearing witness to yourself. And he's saying, I'm allowed to bear witness to, him, to myself. And the way that he proves this and the way that he proves that he is the son of God and has the authority to do exactly this is quoted here in John 8, 58 at the end of the chapter. It says, Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, just a quick snippet of, of history here. That word that he said right there is a word that no Jew would ever utter under any circumstance. In fact, it's the name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses. It means I am that I am, or I exist. I have always existed. I do always exist. I am the source of all existence. You can't really actually pin it down. That's the whole point. And, and this name was so sacred that when scribes would write in the Old Testament and they would get to the name Yahweh, when they would get to his name, they would stop they would put down the pen. They would go to a, a, a pool like the pool of Shalom that we talked about a few weeks ago and they would cleanse themselves in it. They would come back to the scroll. They would get a new quill out, a fresh clean one, and they would carefully, patiently, perfectly ascribe and write the name of God. And as they did, they would speak an honor and a blessing over his name as they wrote it. Now, can you imagine if you're writing a text and your page is this big and it says Yahweh 10 times on it? Like, this is no joke. This name is revered above every other thing. And so Jesus is standing there and he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. He's not just saying the name. He's saying, I am the name. It's one thing to say it. That's a mistake, right? And you can almost kind of like be like, wow, he just, he should not have done that, right? But he's looking him right in the face and he's saying, I am. Like God is standing before you right now. And it's an incredible bookend to this passage because what happens when he says the name of God. So you see, you start the story with this woman and she's been exposed in sin and they're picking up stones to kill her. And he and Jesus steps in and miraculously intervenes and, and, he, and he forgives her and he, and, he, and he gets her off the hook. And now here at the end of the chapter, here's Jesus being exposed. He's saying, here, here's who, this is who I am. I'm the son of God. I'm the great I am. I'm the eternal one. And he says the name of God and they pick up stones to kill him. This is the testimony of scripture. This is, this is the gospel, guys. Like, See the parallels between the woman and Jesus. Here's the woman. She's caught and arrested in broad daylight. How was Jesus caught and arrested? In the middle of the night. 
in a cloud of secrecy and shame because they knew what they were doing was wrong compared to the woman who we know is guilty of her crime, right? She was mocked and accused. And she stood there silently. And why was she silent? Because she knew she was guilty. Because she was deeply ashamed. Jesus was mocked and accused. And he stood there silent. Why did he stand there silently? Because he trusted the Father to vindicate him, to exalt him into the highest place, because he knew that he had to go to the cross, that we might not live under a yoke of sin and shame anymore. She had witnesses to her crime. Jesus had witnesses. They were false witnesses. They lied about him. She was deserving of her punishment, but was forgiven by Jesus. He was undeserving of his punishment, yet he was punished for our sin. She was saved from judgment. He was judged unjustly on our behalf. She was shown mercy. He was shown no mercy. She was told to go and sin no more. And Jesus took the sin of the world and laid it upon his shoulders. What does that mean for us, sons and daughters of God? What does it mean? It means that we can lay down our stones. It means that we can lay a hold of the freedom that God has for us. John 8, 11, there it says, neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on, sin no more. It's huge. He's telling her, you're free, you, you can go. But we need to understand the order here, right? Because how many times do you think this woman had tried to stop sinning? How many times have you tried? Do you think she wanted to be where she was? Do you think she hadn't tried to turn her life around or to live differently than she had? And so if Jesus is just looking to her and say, hey, go do a better job. Well, that's actually not very kind, is it? I've wiped your slate clean from here, but from now on, you're on your own. You gotta do it in your own strength. No, what we're learning here, what the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that forgiveness comes before obedience. Obedience springs out of what God has already done for us. That when we've been washed clean, when the, when the yoke of shame, when that stench has been washed out of our soul, we can stand with joy and say, God, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, I'm loved. I know that no matter what I do, no matter where I go, no matter where I've been, that you love me. That you love me because you love me, because you love me and you proved it by being exalted on the cross and dying for me. You took the stone so I wouldn't have to. And now the stone's been rolled away from my life. Now I can live in resurrection power. This is the hope of the gospel. Go and sin no more. It doesn't come from us in our own strength. It comes from the revelation and the power and the resurrection life that lives in us through Jesus Christ. Man, I get excited about this. Every time it's the gospel. John, Jesus says it in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So how do we get free? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So, so Jesus does not say you will live a righteous life and your righteous life will set you free. He says, you will know what church? The truth, you will know what? 
and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that sets us free. What is the truth? The truth is this. You're safe in the light. You're safe in the light. You can come into the light without fear, without shame, without worry. Whatever that thing is that's hidden, whatever the thing is that you feel like if people knew this about me, they would want nothing to do with me. This is the power and the beauty of the gospel. You can come boldly into the light because it's what kind of light? It's the light of life. It's not the light of judgment. It's not the light of condemnation. It's not the light of shame. It's the light of life. When we come into the light, we come alive. And so we can drop our stones. We can let go of our stones. We don't have to hold them on, onto them anymore. Vulnerability is the antidote to shame. Vulnerability, letting ourselves be known, letting ourselves be seen before God and before the family of God and those we can trust, it's what sets us free. And so I'm gonna just land on this this morning. I wanna ask you, how, how do you see God? How do you see the Father? Is he holding a stone? When you come to him, is he holding a stone? Is he, is he ready to judge? Is he ready to criticize and to condemn and to put you down and to make you feel ashamed and to push you deeper into that hole? Is that how you see him? Or maybe he's got the stone in his hand, but it's behind his back, right? He's kind of smiling on the front, but you know it's right there, quick at hand. You know, or maybe it's over on the counter over here somewhere and he's over here playing with you, having a good time, enjoying you. But once again, if you cross the line, if you trip up, he's just gonna walk right over here and pick up that stone. John 8, 36, if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. If the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Indeed, meaning that's it. That's the freedom. He set you free. Why? So you'd be free. So that no more would we have to look over our shoulder and wonder when the stone's coming, when our shame's gonna catch up to us, when the stench is gonna rub off. We can be known because we're deeply loved and accepted by God because he's carried our sin and shame to the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Receive it, family of God. There is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Father, we bless you. This is good news. There's no news like this anywhere in heaven or on earth. This is the gospel that delivers us and sets us free. It, it delivers us not just from our sin, not just from the mistakes that we made, but it delivers us to feel good about ourselves, not because we've done anything right, but because you've done it all, because you've washed away the stench of our sin. We've been made pure and clean, washed whiter than snow, and we can stand before God Almighty without reservation, ready to receive everything that you have for us. We can lay down our stones, God. 
And we can receive the power and the freedom of God this morning. And so that's how we want to respond, God. Will you come and set us free, that we might be free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Our ministry team is going to come forward here in just a moment. Why don't you guys stand up for me? And as they come forward, I'm going to invite you to respond in, in one of two ways. Um, the first one is an invitation to come into the light. Come into the light. I am the light of the world. And that light is life. I can just make that promise to you again this morning. Some of us have been, I just see a picture of kind of curled up in a corner, balled up, head down covered in shame, terrified of the things that we've done and the way that it makes others see us. And Jesus is saying, come into the light. The light is safe. I promise I'll be kind. I promise I'll be merciful. I'll promise I'll be generous with you in every way. So that's the first invitation is come into the light. Maybe it's just coming up here and getting on your knees and just pouring your heart out to God and crying out to him. And the second thing is an invitation to drop our stones. Some of us have been holding on to stones. We've been living in accusation. We've been living in bitterness. We've been living in condemnation. Maybe it's those people on the other side of the aisle, not this aisle, that political aisle, right? Maybe we've been caught up in culture wars and maybe we've been so engaged with being right and getting it right that, that we've forgotten that, hey, we've got things that are worth stoning in our lives as well. So we need to put down our stones. We need to come humbly and say, God, do a work in me that I might carry the love and the freedom of Christ to them, that you might do a work in them. So come forward as you will and let's respond to what God has for us this morning.